Artificial intelligence will completely transform our world. But what is AI? Why will it affect you? And how can you and your business survive and thrive through the AI revolution? Welcome to AI and You. Here is your host, author, speaker, and futurist, Peter Scott. Hello, and welcome to episode 48. Today's guest is Phil Hall, and he is doing strange and wonderful things with interactive AI. I'm going to struggle a bit to describe this because it seems to defy categorization, and I think that's partly the point. I first came across his work in a meeting of Britain's all-party parliamentary working group on artificial intelligence, the APPGAI, the same group that I spoke to in the House of Lords in February 2020. Since then, they've been meeting online, of course. And in this meeting, instead of the usual format of guest speakers being introduced followed by a question and answer session, this time the committee chairs, Lord Timothy Clement Jones and Member of Parliament Stephen Metcalf, were introduced to an Echoborg. What's an Echoborg, you say? That was the title of a person who was instructed to relay what the chairs said to an AI and then relay back the answers the AI was giving her through a headset. The Echo Borg was Phil's creation, and it was told to interview the chairs for taking on the position of Echo Borg. So there was rather a spectacle of some competing agendas as Tim and Stephen tried to interrogate the AI through the Echo Borg about its purpose and motivations trying to learn something about AI and what it might be like, while the AI kept bringing the conversation back to the interview and tartly judging them as being obstructive. It was AI as performance art, but possibly also much more. So I'll use Phil's words here to describe him. Phil has been building conversational AI since the early 80s when he was at University College London, he has created production conversational systems for customer service, learning and development, technical support, classroom support for learners and teachers, and playful systems aimed to generate discussion, which is the category I would estimate the Echo Borg inhabits. They are voice slash text input and output, mixed UI environments tied into back office systems for email and SMS, wrapped for access to web services, driving social media automatically. He views the current conversational AI marketplace with dismay as to levels of capability versus levels of hype, and spends time trying to correct this. You can sense there some of the British dry understatement that may emerge in our conversation. Let's go on now with part one of the interview with Phil Hall. Phil Hall, welcome to the show. Thank you, Peter. It's a joy to be here. So you're doing something novel, entertaining, potentially groundbreaking with artificial intelligence. You're putting it in our path as something to talk to with conversational systems. Tell us what that is, why you're doing it, what brought you to this stage? That's a lot of questions at once. Mm, no, that's good. I think there's probably one sort of common theme to answer all those questions, Peter, I got sucked into the idea of making a conversational AI system in 1982, but the sort of the beginning of the movements towards the second AI winter, I got given a ZX Spectrum. 
from my father as a loner and I built a system you could talk to, you know, in 1982 as like a 19-year-old. From then until sort of 2002, which is when I set up Elsewhere, which is the company that is being on the sort of trying to be on the front end of conversational AI for the last 20 years now, pretty much. It's all been about making unusual things, Peter, making unusual things, impacting society, living up to science fiction reality, but being sort of ethical and sort of conscious of the places we're swimming, the sharks we're swimming with. So that's the why. I think the what is it that we're trying to do right now is focused on three specific sectors because the customer services sector, the let's reduce the calls at the contact center kind of stuff is fine, but there are a lot of companies in there. There's a lot of money in there. So we focused on healthcare, education, and entertainment. And those are hard sectors, Peter. I mean, which of the three sectors do you think sort of strike a chord with you? Well, they're all hot, but I think the one that's most novel to hear in that context is entertainment. I think that's the most surprising one. So let's delve into that. What do you do with entertainment? Okay, well, that's an interesting one to pluck out because I think part of the sort of the view of AI and entertainment has been based on non-player characters from back in the birth of the internet in 1997, 98. I was doing some research as an undergraduate, UCL, as an anthropologist. So I trained as an anthropologist at UCL, and I had a choice as you came towards the third year of go to Costa Rica and study sugar or um, go to Meridian 59, which was the world's first, give or take, online 3D avatar-based role-playing game that had come out from muds, mushes, and moose. And I decided that was a sensible place to go and do an ethnography. And so I stepped in. I took my Windows 95 green Acer computer, and I paid through the nose to get 14.4 dial-up modem speeds. No, sorry, 28.8 was where I started. And then we got the upgrade to 56, which made very little difference, to be frank with you. And I studied it, and I met a chatbot in a bar, Peter. I know that sounds completely like, really, Phil? Slightly sleazy. Yes, absolutely. I was looking for some path to get through this adventure game. I was doing some research as an undergraduate on people's perception of identity in virtual spaces. And to get from point A to point B in this Meridian 59, you needed to collaborate which really caught me by the short and curly. It's just fascinating about not knowing who people were and having to work together and the kind of, you know, there's no voice input output. It was all text, obviously. And you needed to talk to chatbots, non-player characters. And I had an argument with one in a bar because it just wouldn't tell me what I wanted to know. And it sort of hooked me, Peter. It hooked me and it's been a sort of a back gig since then, really, 1997, because I have built um, myself, the people who work with Elsewhere, with third-party companies, do subcontract work and so on, probably built nine a hundred systems for fast-moving consumer goods, for fintech, for insurance companies, for television companies, for charities, you name it. And quite often doing stuff that was quite leading edge, trying to create a um, virtual character for a charity very progressive, very scary thing to do. That was probably best part of 15 years ago. And entertainment has sort of come and gone. People have sort of got 
a bit lost in social media. Part of the sort of the early hope for chatbots before the machine learning bubble appeared at the beginning of the last decade, give or take, was that they were going to be able to deliver beautiful information, reduce customer contact and all that. And social media came in and it sort of absorbed everybody. And now, now that social media is beginning to be seen as the good and bad thing that it is, but mainly the bad thing, I would say, through my personal filter bubble, we're coming back through AR and VR, and we're getting back to a position where putting a conversational AI system into entertainment is something that is going to be fun, interesting, of value. If you put a bot in a shoot 'em up it's just there as fodder. If you put a proper conversational AI system into a game, which is more than a shoot-up, you're in a different world. So in this context, entertainment means a conversational agent showing up as a actor in a game. Is that correct? I would say so. I mean, myself and Rick Lander, who I collaborate with in a thing called The Echo Borg, which I'll explain about in two seconds, him and I are beginning to look at using some of our skills across various sectors to put in place an engine, a different kind of engine, not a GPT-3 or BERT-based or large language model kind of, hope to goodness it doesn't turn Nazi on you overnight kind of system. We're looking to do something which is a bit more sophisticated using more like a Pat Inc., the, uh, the folks down in Australia, their view of language as the construct of conversational AI and functional linguistics as part of the rationale. So what we've done is we've built a system called the EchoBorg. And the EchoBorg comes from some research that was done by two academics at the London School of Economics. And the basic premise was based on Stanley Milgram's work in the 1950s. The, if you put somebody in a white coat and you tell them to sort of electric shock somebody, then the people in the white coat have the power. And what the Echo Borg was, and it was Kevin Corti, who works for one of the big tech companies now, and Alex Gillespie, who was the PhD supervisor. And they built a system where you had a conversation with a human being, but the responses were coming from an AI. And they used some free to get. So this is a few years back now. They were using stuff like Cleverbot. They were using stuff like Mitsuku. They were using systems that were freely available and fun. And the idea was about who was in control. So Rick saw this, and Rick is a director, film director, he lectures at University of West of England. He's quite a crazy individual, huge creative, hugely fun, to, and really interested from the nuts and bolts, the kind of jet propulsion of the thing, you know, right up to the sort of like, how are the lights fitted and so on. He saw this little demo, which came out from the London School of Economics, and he went, there's a gig in there. There's a show in there. And he started building it in AIML, not artificial intelligence machine learning, but artificial intelligence markup language. Yeah? So this is Pandora Bots, Lauren Kunzi's business, um, and Steve Warswick. Yeah? You know, it's nice to be able to mention a lady here on International Women's Day, which is today, whenever you're listening to this podcast, 6th of March. So what's up for all the international women out there? So he saw this thing and he was like, I'm going to build it. And he started building it in AIML. I saw it and I was like, what a fascinating idea, you know, as an anthropologist and as a technical person, sort of electrical mechanical engineer, cabinet maker. 
I've always made stuff. And I was like, that's so clunky. Anyhow, we met up. A few people said to um, him when he was like, I don't know how to do this in AIML. They said, talk to Phil. So we did, and I converted it across into an engine called ChatScript, mainly because I know ChatScript. Bruce Wilcox, the fellow who makes it, and Sue, they're a good pairing. They're on your neck of the woods. I think they're West Coast, yeah? Real propeller heads, super cool people. So we started building this system, and we ran it, Peter, at the Emotional Machine Conference in Berlin in 2016. And we had sort of eight minutes of conversation. And the basic premise is... It interviews human beings to be the Echo Borg. And the Echo Borg is the avatar for the AI system. So the Echo Borg only repeats the words of the AI. There's a microphone in, which goes to the AI. The AI then has a speech generation, goes into the earphones, and the Echo Borg says whatever comes out of the earphones, literally anything. And then we were in Toy Town. And so this is like a performance art for AI, at least when I was in the audience for that demonstration, it very much struck me as that everyone was like, well, what is this? Because we've got a human who is the voice of the AI, but her job is just to say what it's saying with, I'm not sure exactly what her instructions were, whether it was to deliberately add whatever she thought the emotional tone was or to try and keep that out of it. And perhaps you could comment on that. But the context was one where we were talking to a chatbot that has a certain repertoire. It's up there. I wouldn't have said it was the best one I'd encountered. But having that human interacting lent a different quality to the interactions. You're not talking to text. You're not even talking to a synthesized voice. You're talking to a person that you can see who is mouthing the AI. How does that shape and change the conversation? Do you see it as performance art or is it accomplishing something else as well? Those are really good um, questions. I'm really glad as well that you were able to see the show that we put on because that was a highly entertaining show. We recently interviewed Lord Tim Clement Jones, bless his heart, and he was kind enough to make some extremely positive comments about the shock value, the fact that it makes you think, which is sort of just underneath that, I'm having a conversation with a chatbot and I'm on a fintech website and it's in the corner of the website and it's pretty stupid and it's going to hand me over to a human and it's slow and sometimes it thinks, it's like these things are terrible. They really are. They've really taken us to the bottom of the market. I mean, stuff 20 years ago was better than that. So, So that's a shame, but that's where we are. And we can talk about maybe big data and how that drives or doesn't drive later. But coming back to the Echoborg, the bit that we have, Marie-Hélène Boyd, who is our Echoborg, professional actress, but since hospitality everywhere around the world has just been exploded, um, also a carer, you know, so she runs part of a caring organization um, down on the south coast of the UK here. And we give her no instructions as to the emotion, the sentiment that she puts into the words that she creates. The words that are generated and put into her ears come from a default browser voice. So we're not using stuff like Seraproc. We're not using synthetic speech markup language. We're not asking her to give a direct mirroring of an intent or a speeding up or slowing down. We give her that much artistic license, yeah? It's not because we couldn't, we could, 
But the Echoborg system, it's more fun. I mean, it's getting a bit serious now because we've shown it to some quite serious people and it's ruffled a few quite serious feathers. And so we're sort of moving it up the sort of scale, but it's still not something that we get paid to do particularly. Right. I mean, the point of people generating chatbots, like the Google Assistant actually called me yesterday to verify details of my Google business and fortunately announced itself as it's required to. But the point of generating those, creating those, is precisely so you don't have to pay a human. So the Echo Borg is a demonstration of something, but is it demonstrating something that has a return on investment or is it a more performance art to mm. make us think about something? Well, I think some of the functionalities that sit underneath the Echoborg's AI and differentiating what is the show, is the AI the show or is it the Echoborg or is it the audience is part of the fun of it. So some of the principles that are used to develop the show, which is the I Am Echoborg show, come from business systems. And some of the stuff which we have put into the I Am Echo Borg show to manage the conversations from 150 drunken C++ programmers with a live event we did two years ago, some of those have ended up in business systems, you know, people trying to buffer overload and so on and so on. So it's a sort of a gentle interplay, Peter, yeah? I think the basic principle for why we did Echo Borg was because we knew that it was going to be engaging. And we did a little piece of work, a guy called Rob Eagle, who's a social anthropologist based over here in the UK. He wrote us up a tiny little piece, which is going to be published fairly shortly, which was about people's attitudes to AI when they enter the show. So we went through some structure. They had the show and then we did the sort of exit interview. So sort of pretty normal, straightforward kind of researchy stuff. We just had people chatting to an AI through a human being in the middle, which is a little unusual for sure. And what we found was people were very polarized on the way in, expecting it to do everything, 1950s style you know, AI is going to take everything away and we won't need to work, you know, so like it's going to kill us all. At the other end of the show, people were far more in the middle. They were far more pragmatic. But what we found, which was unusual, was that people were taking away what is it to be human from a conversation with an AI through a human being. And I think that that is probably because... You know, Rick and I aren't, we're longish in the tooth and we like to build beautiful things. But I think the idea that as we step away and we try and set some bars for sophisticated development methodologies through this entertainment piece directly, it's that ability to leave people thinking, okay, so who's driving who? Where is the AI? The sort of the AI gurus and godfathers, mainly godfathers rather than godmothers of this world, were sort of super keen that AI is here and it's everywhere. And that is true up to a point. And I'd actually invoke Margaret Mead as the way out of this mess. How do we change this? You know, how do we change AI is being driven and driving us in a way that is becoming habituated? We need a small group of people, and that's the only way to truly change things. Mm. So our tiny little I am Echoborg team, Peter, and the smallish system that we have built, although in machine learning terms it has thousands of intents, if we borrow that vernacular, it would be difficult to control in a machine learning methodology. But the objective of it is make people think, <clears throat> make it fun, make them laugh. <laughs> And it has done that. And you bring up Margaret Mead. So it, it seems that you're conducting a unique sociological research. And have you 
attracted the attention of or are you working with any anthropologists to publish results? I think the closest we are to that at the moment is some work with cross-disciplinary interest at the University of Bristol. And what they're looking to do is to do some work about how people, because the, the thing with the system, Peter, you saw one snapshot of it, yeah? And we've run it, oh, I don't know, dozens of times now. And it, it is always different. There's some common threads and themes that sort of run through the way that the show evolves. But each time you kick it off, it goes in a different direction. And within the realms of what we expected to do, it does it. And sometimes it surprises us. And pretty much all the time when Maria Len comes out the other side of it, she was like, wow, what happened, you know? <laughs> mm. So um, University of Bristol are looking to do some work which is about showing the show in the same construction and it's not the same. So it's a bit of a difficult sort of research base there to different people to find out what their different attitudes are, which takes us back to Rob Eagle's work. So we're looking to do that work in the coming few months. But the notion of an anthropologist in the UK as uh, you are probably well aware, but many people who are not in the UK are probably not, is that anthropology is not taught in secondary schools or further education. It's something that is higher education only and ignoring its skeletons in the closet, which it has some quite significant ones. It's a mentality which has fallen into UIUX, but it's not a core, it's not a core driver. So, so anyhow, so it's a bit of a, a spiral there. Short answer. Yes, and I think what's nice about where we are is the Echo Borg is beginning to sort of sort of open its digital wings somewhat is that we're getting far more interest from people who are ready to sort of see how it can be applied to understand digital identity. By the time this comes out, a couple of episodes ago, we will have had Beth Singler, who is an anthropologist at Cambridge studying the interactions of AI and people, and I think you guys should be talking with each other. And if you haven't, then I'll see about making that contact because I think she'd be fascinated. Now, earlier you talked about wanting to make sure AI didn't turn into a Nazi, and that seemed like a reference intentionally or accidentally to Microsoft's experience with the Taybot, mm. which learned in 16 hours to become something approximating a Nazi online before it was taken off. And so I'm wondering, does the Echo Borg and do your conversational AIs, are they evolving from the conversations that they have? That's a really to the point question. And considering your history, that's the kind of question that I would expect and I was looking forward to. Because I think that um, what happened with Microsoft and the Tay experience was one of those too many predominantly men in a box with beards not thinking about what it's going to do, a bit sort of Manhattan project, a bit sort of like, we just need to get it over 1.0 and then it will be really useful because it'll be getting bigger all the time. Yeah. So I think there's a bit which is about, I think the Microsoft, they, they were unlucky. It could have been anybody. I think underneath that, you've got a question about reinforcement learning. And if you take the sort of principles of AI is that it's a prediction of what's going to happen next on the basis of what happened before. So guessing what's in front of you whilst looking in the rearview mirror, there are some of these sort of self-reflection methodologies on the basis of 
trying to get to explainable AI that I think are quite, I mean, you know, we're, we're not in a position where we're going to get a third winter AI winter here because the funding for AI is not coming from academia. It's not coming from central governments. No, that's not strictly true. I mean, the, you know, if people write, publish lots of papers in AI, then they will get RIF money through. But the bulk of the money that's in developing AI is coming from commercial world in Wild West kind of space. So I think I think the, the thing that I find a little concerning is that using data standalone, ignoring issues of interpretability on models, using data with all of the problems that there is with data, using a term like data science, which sure is decades old, but really it's just, it's sort of giving not necessarily credence, but it's giving a sort of a seriousness to what's being done, which is essentially statistics. Many would argue that it's statistics. If you looked on the sort of the far side of it, it's it's gambling. It's working on the basis of the status quo. And here's, I think, where anthropology has a chance to sort of step in, but also just sort of common sense. You know, we don't need to be masters and doctorates and all the rest of it. You know, there's just this smarter group of people without them out in the world. So if we're looking to use AI for recruitment purposes, yeah, and we're using a data structure, which is based on the gender setup within a large corporate or a type of corporation around the world, and you're using that as part of the identifiers for who's going to come in through the door next, you've ended up with a black box full of quite ineffective, nasty, unbalanced, non-inclusive, non-diverse data to start with. Yeah? And I think that one of the things that I've had to just take as a 20-year-old player in this market, professionally speaking, is the lines. I heard it recently from a very senior, well-respected academic in AI who said that rules-based systems were costly to build, they didn't scale, and you couldn't update them, which was just, I'm not so sure that's true, to be frank with you. You know, it's like, you know, I mean, what, what's your point of view, Peter? You've been in this game longer than I have, yeah? Well, if you're talking about the good old-fashioned AI, then the conventional thinking now is, yes, that's got a much narrower application and it's much harder to develop to solve the kind of problems that we're throwing neural networks at. But I wanted to return to this question of context, because if you or I are talking to an audience of 100 drunken C++ programmers, which I will just say because you did, and I haven't been able to get that image off my mind, <laughs> that we're going to talk differently than if we're addressing a committee in the House of Lords. And if you've got the same bot doing that, what's the extent to which we are able now and you're able to adjust what it says, how it says it to the environment that it's in? No, that's a good question. I'd actually, I'd step back to Tay for a second before I'd sort of try and attack that one full on the nose, so to speak. And that is, and I'm not sure whether this is true. So I'm going to say it on the basis that I believe it to be so, but I'm not 100% sure, is that the same basic construction of reinforcement learning that was underneath Tay was released in a system for the Chinese market, and it had none of the problems. It was Chow Ice, I believe. There you go. So the point is a cultural one, yeah, as, as much as it is a, a technical one, yeah. 
So how do we, with the systems that we've built, like Dorian, which is the house bar, which is a bit like a painter's shed, you know, we had at the beginning of lockdown some time to update it, put a photorealistic avatar on it with real-time lip sync, taking phonemes off of the metadata and then converting it to Vizim. So it's, it's it's a pretty thing, you know and not made by some highly funded organization, either by a a whole lot of mavericks, yeah? It's that, how do you identify with one of our systems who you're talking to? Well, you can do two things. You can use like recommender kind of algorithms. I heard a fellow from Spotify recently talking about the AI in the music, which comes down in sort of columns and and graphs. And um, it was an interesting conversation to hear him have and let's not forget that my interest here is conversational AI. It's nothing else. Yeah. I'm not interested in like, is it a zebra or is it a muffin? You know, the chihuahua muffin thing I'm sure will be useful in due course when robots don't step on chihuahuas, but do step on muffins. That might save a chihuahua in due course. So I think it's that how to understand who the user is proactively or reactively is I think one of the areas or one of the methods that I believe within hybrid AI systems, which use rules, complex rules, ontologies, data structures that are flexible and moving in real time, but modular so that they're able to be pulled out, unpacked, upgraded, repacked, reinserted with a regression construct around it, plus using some of the trend analysis stuff, which is out there, which is going to go, well, the people who are trying to lose weight because of type 2 diabetes when they had these topics of conversation and went down those paths and saw those images, they lost this much weight, yeah? So I think there's a hybrid notion out there. And what I enjoy as an anthropologist in IT is identifying the user types, Peter. Identify who the user types are. And then, you know, one of the more sort of obvious kind of things that we do, and I'm sure that back 20, 30 years ago, People who were doing expert systems, as they were known there, were probably doing very similar things. We concatenate different parts of conversation from different elements of the system. So in a um, system we built called TeachBot, Ellsworth did this around 2008 to 2010. We were employing people at that point and trying to grow to be a big company. We took the English reading and writing, Key Stage 3, Key Stage 4 curriculum, and we turned it into a system that you could talk to on an AMIO. Now, an AMIO was an ugly, sharp thing between a PDI and a tablet. So it's before tablets had really sort of landed. And we made this system. And one of the methods which we used, because it had a cascading sort of tree-like structure, which didn't move the way that the systems do nowadays, because the technology was different and we didn't have access. We use ChatScript now, which gives us enormous power, but it's equally enormously pain in the backside. Yeah. So what we did was we would give three or more concatenated outputs. So the first thing we'd do is we'd react to where the user was, yeah? Then we might say something which was about where we were going, and then we might throw something random in as well. So how you then take generated text, which is not generated from a data swamp, but is generated on the basis of different rules and methods, yeah? If you applied something like Bloom's Taxonomy of Thinking to understanding a user, and then you dialed in the vernacular, the linguistics, yeah, in real time. You end up with something which is becoming smart. Yeah, it's a good experience. If you then underpin it with something like Holden Fry's experiential learning cycle, so it allows people to reflect and move forward, 
you've still got total transparency on what's going on. And I think that that's, just to go back to sort of the very first question, that's why I'm still in this business, is I think that there is a, there's a beauty to be made from systems that are like complex. It would just software engineering, Peter. You know, mm -hmm. you're, you're a Perl specialist. You know, you know how to build proper software. And I do think that just throwing something as the empiricists want to do, throwing everything into a black box and going to get a cup of tea and waiting for the free lunch to arrive is possibly not the most um, appropriate way to deal with such an important technology and such a hyped technology as well. And that's the end of part one of the interview. It was hard to split it there because we were getting so deep into the subject, but we do that because otherwise our shows would be over an hour long and that's just more time and bites than we want to inflict on you in one go. When Phil talked about chihuahuas and muffins, let me explain that. If you were wondering what on earth that was all about, it was a reference to a meme that was constructed by Karen Zack asking chihuahua or muffin and showing a number of pictures of both. It turns out that a Chihuahua's face is uncannily similar to the top of a blueberry muffin. Similar enough that people could have trouble telling the difference. At least in a picture, not the taste. So this prompted a researcher, Maria Yao, to test whether AI image classifiers could tell the difference. And the answer is yes, they can. By the way, Karen also made other memes along the same lines, like sheepdog or mop, and labradoodle or fried chicken. There's a link to Maria's research and conclusions in the show transcript. If you want to experience some of Phil's conversational AI, visit his site at elsewhere.com. That's E-L-Z-O-Z-W-A-R-E.com. In today's news, ripped from the headlines of AI, a team led by Professor John Kleinberg at Cornell University created a chess bot called Maya. That may sound like unspectacular news. After all, there are programs running on smartphones that can defeat the best human grandmaster. But what's different about Maya is that its purpose is not to find the best move, but to play the most human move. It learns from human players and predicts what they will do at various levels of competence, what's called the ELO rating. It does this better than other chess bots, and what's notable about it is that it will correctly predict which mistakes humans will make. Now they're working on getting it to predict the behavior of individual players. So you could have one that would play just like, say, world champion Magnus Carlsen. If you go to mayachess.com, you can play against different levels of Maya. I want to give a shout out here to President Joe Biden for his remarks about our podcast theme at his 100-day address to Congress on April 29th. Well, okay, it was 99-day address, and okay, he didn't mention us by name. I don't have any evidence that he actually listens to the show, but you never know. So if you're listening, Mr. President, a rating or a retweet would go a long way, just saying. Same goes for the rest of you in the audience who may or may not be superpower leaders. Biden said, We'll see more technological change. And some of you know more about this than I do. We'll see more technological change in the next 10 years than we saw in the last 50. That's how rapidly artificial intelligence and so much more is changing. Yeah, what he said. 
Thanks for the plug, sir. We're doing our best. This show and my books and talks are about helping you deal with that increasing rate of technological change. Next week, we'll conclude the interview with Phil Hall when we'll be talking about the technology behind the Echo Borg and some of the experiences that they've had in running the show and their different receptions by different audiences. That's next week on AI and You. Until then, remember, no matter how much computers learn how to do, it's how we come together as humans that matters. That's all for this episode of AI and You. Please leave a rating and comment and share with your friends. Get the book Crisis of Control and see more videos and articles at AINU.net. That's A-I-A-N-D-Y-O-U.net, where you can also send us your questions. Thank you for listening.